1: make your second half of life first. When Elise Klink set out on a career path years ago, she wanted to be a screenwriter. She even wrote more than a half a dozen scripts and was represented in Hollywood for a time. Then she realized she had to support herself. So she started writing articles about real estate and discovered she loved being a freelance writer, selling hundreds of stories a year to newspapers, magazines, and paid publications. Soon she became a syndicated newspaper columnist, starting at $15 a week. And now, Elise Glink is CEO of ThinkLink, a creator of four Chicago based companies, a best selling financial journalist, author, radio, and TV personality. In today's conversation, Elise will take us through her extraordinary evolving journey of ThinkLink across a series of innovative projects and ventures, extending her brand into personal finance, consumer advice, even as a creator of digital content and media strategies. Of course, she'll give us her latest insights about the real estate market as we head into the spring housing season, as well as the confluence of the great reconfigurations in housing, finance, and careers for much of the American public. And Elise will explain her latest groundbreaking project, Best Money Moves, a mobile-first employee benefit designed to help organizations measure and dial down financial stress among the workers and promote the principles of financial wellness. So now let's meet our guest, Elise Glink. Elise, welcome to the show.
2: Oh Ron, it's nice to be here. Thanks for having me.
1: Well, it's a real pleasure. Um, for the benefit of our audience, uh, you should know that Elise and I met many decades ago. Not well, it, oh, it no, doesn't you're seem like that. Me? Long. <laughs> Made you myself. <laughs> no, we we met when I was the real estate editor uh, at at Newsday, a newspaper, and I used to go to annual real estate editors conferences and elise was there as a already a well-known columnist and uh, it was such a pleasure to reconnect with her recently and say well i should you know let's look at where she's been over these years and where she's going and what she you know what she's contributed what she's learned so it's really a pleasure having you and i i wanted to just start off by talking about just your initial career path where you decided to go start off freelancing which is always a A bold move, and you really went for it.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I, I figured I was unhirable. I had gotten fired from the very first job I'd ever had after four months, and leaving was a disaster. And then I had a little freelance writing job, and then I found a second job at a book publisher. And this job I actually really loved. The first job, I was just kind of a, I don't even know what I was, property manager for a commercial property company. I didn't really love it, but I learned a lot. Hmm. And then the second one, though, as a book publisher, I really loved that job. And I don't know, after a year, uh, thinking I went in with like a new suit, thinking I was going to get a promotion, and instead I got canned. (laughs) (laughs) I thought, I guess I shouldn't be working full time. Somebody in the universe is telling me, go off on your own. And so I thought, well, I'm just going to go for it and see what happens.
1: Yeah. Well, a lot happened, so <laughs> um, so so we'll get into a lot of What you've been doing over the years, but um, so initially though, you, you did um, uh, focus on real estate. Um, what what drew you to real estate in particular, though?
2: Well, I've always been interested in how people live in their houses. Uh, I, I used to go to my friends' houses, and I was I thought I always wanted a tour of their house. I thought it was cool the way they lived. I thought it was really interesting that people in their homes kind of mirror each other. And and in fact, this professor uh, at Berkeley, I think it was Berkeley, wrote a book many, many years ago called House is a a Mirror of Self is, I think, the title of it. And it's all about kind of the same philosophy as dog owners, right? You look at some dog owners and they look like they're dogs. Mm
0: -hmm. (laughs) Like,
2: you know, shaggy dogs have parents' dog you know parents with shaggy heads i don't know it's kind of this weird thing where you know you start to look like your environment and for houses you know it's interesting to just watch how people um fill their homes with things that obviously reflect their lives and as they get older you know the house mirrors your accomplishments it mirrors your inner feelings and secrets and desires and i just always found that really interesting and so i started writing about real estate um, it also helped, I'll say, that my boyfriend's soon-to-be husband uh, at the time was a real estate lawyer and that my mother was a top-selling real estate agent. And so I had access to stories and great resources and information. And then I just, by happenstance, met a woman at the Chicago Tribune who introduced me to a guy named Chuck Hayes. He's been gone a long time but he was the editor of the real estate section and it just so happened that real estate was booming in the US the mm-hmm. newspaper sections were huge and they needed a freelance writer who understood it and because i had gone to real estate school and passed my real estate salesperson's license in my spare time trying to figure out what i wanted to be i was a perfect freelance writer and so i the tribune started using as much as i could deliver and i was off to the races
1: wow that's great great yeah, I you know, I, I I in my newspaper career, I didn't intend to go and be the real estate editor, and then the act two retirement planning editor. Like a lot of things in life, things just get shifted. All of a sudden, you you you're told, well, this is what you're going to do next. And I remember thinking, well, I don't. At the time, I was like, well, I don't know anything about real estate, um, but you know, they'll say, well, fine, that's okay with us. I'm like, okay. And then as you get involved in it, you realize a lot of what you just said about it reflects, there's an, an amazing emotional component to it, you know, and you realize that all the expressions about, you know, home, you know, and I need a place of home or where where do, where do people want to age in place? They want to age in place in their home. So there's a tremendous, you know, emotional component to your home. And also then you attach it to the... In incredible importance that real estate is to our economy when you start thinking about that oh well, wait a minute you know the amount that it contributes to people buying and selling homes and then buying all the stuff that's in their homes I mean it's it's a tremendous you know tremendously important part of the economy that you know doesn't you know, we don't, we look at consumer spending, but this is one big consumer spend. So it's, you know, I think it's really a terrific area to really understand. Um, so uh, talking about this, so let's talk about just right now, you know, so you're, you're always looking at personal finance and real estate. So of course, now we're headed into sort of a different period, you know, a post-pandemic period, we think uh, rates are going up. So what do you see now just for people's uh, perspective right now?
2: Well, there's not a lot going on right now. We've Mm -hmm. got uh, (laughs) the lowest level of mortgage applications in almost 30 years. Mm. Interest rates have been going up. The Federal Reserve says it's going to keep raising interest rates. I think we should believe them. Uh, Inflation is still high. Uh, We're in kind of a land of never before, Mm. as I like to call it when it comes to real estate, right? Usually when interest rates go up, housing prices go down. It's just supply and demand, right? right? But that's not what's happening now. What's happened since the pandemic began is that we have a global shortage. Actually, it's it is global, but you know, national shortage of real estate in the U.S. And literally, we don't have enough housing for about six and a half million people. Hmm. And this isn't that they're homeless. They're the largest number of people under the age of thirty are living at home with their parents now, hmm. right? Um, we have multi-generational families one of the fastest growing segments of home buyers people want five and six bedroom homes with several or all master baths because they've got adults living at home who need their own space but there simply aren't enough homes to go around and so uh, even though we have rising interest rates and it's gotten very expensive to buy a house we literally have a housing shortage. And so again, supply and demand, not enough homes to go around, prices are high, interest rates are making that even more expensive. And so we live in this land of never before right now with real estate, where we're just not building enough houses or multifamily or even rental units to house everybody who wants their own place.
1: And, And why is it though? Why is it just a lag in terms of, uh, building industry uh are are there just impediments and obstacles to 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 building it seems like from my experience there there you know well where i live on long island there are a lot of obstacles people developers naturally are always complaining but i think with some validity so what why is there such a lag
2: well there's a a bunch of reasons that are going into it so 15 years ago in the great recession a lot of mom and pop builders uh people who have small companies that maybe build 10, 15 houses a year, uh, they went out of business. And large developers to be able to uh, survive that time period, they merged with other builders. A lot of land that had been under contract went back to the bank and was resold or just went in back into you know, just hanging out and being farmed. So that was one thing that happened. The second thing that happened from the Great Recession, and it's hard to believe that 15 years later, we're talking about a hangover effect. Mm-hmm. But the other thing that happened is a lot of the people who were the builders themselves, the people who hung wallpaper and drywall and painted and carpeted and, and, and actually laid the foundations, all of a lot of those people li- literally left the industry. There was nothing happening for so many years. They had to feed their families. They went and found other things to do. Mm. And so- For a long time, probably eight years, instead of building a million to a million and a half new housing units a year, we were building 300,000 to 600,000. And so over the course of eight or nine or 10 years, we simply didn't build the number of houses we needed even to keep pace with the number of people in the country. You know, country grows, we have more people, more people wanna move out of their parents' place or they wanna move up or they get divorced and they need you know more housing units we simply didn't have enough that were being built so there was a lag there the other thing that happened to the great recession is that a lot of people went into foreclosure you may have had you know five ten million people I can't even remember the number now of people who went into foreclosure and Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac and the banks took back a lot of those housing units and so the banks could only hold them for five years on their books. Well, we weren't really out of the recession five years later. And so up stepped to the plate, private equity groups and hedge funds, and they bought huge numbers of these foreclosed homes from FHA, from Fannie Mae, from mm-hmm. Freddie Mac. And instead of reselling them, they just started renting them out, mostly to the people who were living there beforehand. So those houses got taken off the books. And you can start to see how all of these different things, and then on top of that, of course, now, you know, you've got a tremendous amount of regulation, NIMBY, not in my backyard. Lots of people want more housing. They don't want a building in their neighborhood. They think there's too much traffic. All of that has contributed to this lack of housing, and it's causing very serious problems, particularly for millennials and Gen Z. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that, you know, the other thing that I, I've noticed, too, is that that people's needs have shifted. You, you mentioned some multi generational housing. Um, I think that um, uh, from the perspective, you know, of the market I cover, you know, older folks as well as younger folks, millennial. You know, we're still, uh, you know, talking about lag where I live, especially there is just a, you know, a perception that of um, suburbia being the 50s and 60s. And so the market has changed. People's, you know, the culture has changed. People's needs have changed. Um, they want different kinds of housing. Where I am, the divorce rate is still 50%. So there's not the there's not a, the appropriate kind of housing that we need, you know, as well as a shortage. So that seems to exacerbate things.
2: Well, and then you had the pandemic. So what happened in the pandemic is people fled inner cities, they fled condo buildings, and they started moving to suburbs. And then people in the suburbs moved to rural areas. And you, I think everybody expected that after a couple of years, they would have to go back to work in their offices. And that has not happened. Mm -hmm. We are seeing a fundamental shift in how people work and where people work. And Zoom has made things so easy for the vast majority of people who never thought they'd be able to work from home to work from home. And so now companies you know, they tried to get everybody back to work. That didn't work. Then uh, they started seeing the great resignation. Well, we don't want to lose everybody. It's going to cost us a boatload of money to fill those positions. How, How about if we do a hybrid approach? And so now what you're seeing are people who might live in one city and they fly into the other city and it's still cheaper for them and a better quality of life to live in the one city, but they fly to work. Wow. Which is really, really interesting. So I, I think that housing has changed dramatically. The number of young people living at home has changed. In the pandemic, a lot of people in their 20s and even 30s went to their parents' house in the suburbs, decided they liked it, decided to move there permanently. We, we're seeing multi-generational families look for larger homes. You typically find those in the sit suburbs, not the city. It's just a profound shift of everything we've understood about real estate for the past 20 years.
1: Yeah. Now you've written uh, over a dozen books, not not all of real estate. You've written about a lot of personal finance, but um, are there things, uh, I guess you're still, uh, well, you're a member of the million book sales club, I call it. <laughs> and so you've, you've got a lot of experience there. Um, uh, what have you been your perennial bestsellers over the years? And have, have they changed much like your hundred questions for every first time home buyer should ask and buy. Well, that's the first one. Yeah. That was the uh,
2: first one. We've actually done four editions of that book. It uh-huh. has almost or more than, I think more now, more than 400,000 books in print. Wow. Uh, the last uh, edition of it was in 2018. And I've had people say, well, what's different now? And the answer is not much. <laughs> Real estate functions really. When I wrote that book, I really started at the beginning and I rewrote the whole book because the world really has changed quite a lot from 1994 when the first edition of that book came out, you know, 25 years later, which is when we did the fourth edition. I mean, everything has gone online. Just as an example, when I wrote that book, the last thing I did was get an AOL email address and I put ah. it in the edition and the people were like, why are you doing that? And I was like, because that's how people are going to find me. And so, you know, you can just tell how far we've come.
1: yeah and yet i guess there are still basic issues and questions that especially first-time home buyers have right i mean
2: how do you how do you get a mortgage what kinds of mortgages are there how do i know if i'm getting the right house how do i become selective when i choose a house what are the nine things i absolutely need to think about before i buy my first house do i need a real estate lawyer and so on and so on and so you know in the book i talk a lot about how, we ch- how we've how we changed and shifted in what we've done and how we value different aspects of real estate and how to think about it. And so, I you know, I think the book's been a perennial seller because I think we answer the questions that everybody has. And then a few of you have, I probably haven't thought of.
1: Yeah. Uh, are there any things that come to mind as to like, you know, over the years consistently, it's like they people never think of this <laughs> or they always forget some things.
2: Well, I will tell you that the number one mistake I think people make is timing, right? Uh Typically, we'll sign a new lease for a year, and then they decide they absolutely have to be a homeowner. So that's a fast recipe for paying for a mortgage and your rent. And, and, you know, think about this timing stuff. It's worth it going to your landlord and saying, can I have a month to month? Or can I do a six-month lease? Can I do an extension of three months at a time? I'm trying to buy a house. And- seeing what that person says. And if there's no other options, fine, you pay both, but hopefully a better way to go.
1: Right, right. Well, we have a ways to go with our show. So, uh, but we're going to uh, take a short break, uh, but don't go anywhere. We, when we come back, we'll have a lot more to talk about with Elise Glink, the president of Think Link. So don't go anywhere. Follow Voice America at facebook.com forward slash Voice for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. channel the internet's number one talk station number one talk station Voiceamerica.com.
0: you're listening to 45 forward to reach ron roel or his guest on the program please send an email to ron.roel at gmail.com that's ron.roel at gmail.com now back to Forty
1: Five Forward. Welcome back, folks. We're talking with Elise Glink, president of Think Link, an award-winning financial journalist, best-selling author, podcaster, columnist, radio and TV personality, and I'm sure more that I've left out. But we'll get to that. So, so when we were before the break, when we were talking with Elise about her um, her real estate books and some of the things that have stayed the same over the years and some things that have changed. So I just want before we go move on to, you know her blend of both personal finance and real estate, talk a bit about um well, my forty five forward folks. So w- what are her observations about older home buyers, homeowners uh, uh, these days?
2: Well, it's interesting. You know, I think that obviously I'm not alone in understanding that there is a large population that's growing very quickly of seniors in this country and they want different things they don't want to trade down and in fact uh, many seniors actually end up buying a larger house Mm. and they buy a larger house because they either are going to eventually live with somebody as a caretaker um, as in their senior years or they see they buy their house uh, with adult children one of their adult children uh, and that family and they see themselves as being able to combine Households buy a bigger property worth more money they live in a piece of it both families contribute to the expense and upkeep or it becomes a way for them to pass that asset down to their kids um, you know going forward and so there's it's really interesting to see how architects and builders are thinking about building but also seniors and what they're doing as well now the other thing that i've seen is the opposite end of the spectrum Ah, uh, there are new kinds of communities that are springing up that allow seniors to have congregate living, where mm-hmm. you might have a whole bunch of tiny houses, and I do mean tiny, like HGTV tiny house show, mm-hmm. um, or smaller homes where the living quarters and the bathroom quarters and maybe a little office are are one building, and then there's a shared communal space for food, for um, entertainment other things. And those kind of might be connected. They might be a little separated depending on where they are in the country. There's a lot of different types of these that are being tested. You've even seen them uh, right now. You're also seeing them for kind of Gen Z 20 somethings who come out of college and they're used to living in a dorm and they live into what I call like high-end dorms, very high-end dorms, right? Small, but beautiful, you know, efficiency, one bedroom apartment, something like that. But again, there's uh, work areas and study areas and uh, recreational areas and sometimes even a working bar or coffee bar Mm. in the actual property itself. And now we're seeing that sort of idea move to our seniors who are looking, you know, maybe they're healthy and they want, but they want socialization. They want, they're, they're not really ready for you know senior centers or senior living although we're seeing plenty of those but they're looking for something else that's really for active adults and it's interesting to watch this play out in real time
1: yeah i guess some of that is called the co-housing movement right i mean in terms of the, having those sorts of uh housing arrangements where people they want their privacy they want their individual spaces but they you know th- that's one of the, the the problems as you get older and you're living in the suburbs where, you know, your friends move away or you pass, they pass away or something. And then like, well, uh, okay, now I'm isolated. So this is a way of building some, you know, engagement and and activity right in the community. Yeah.
2: Yes. And for a lot less money than maybe 10 to 12,000 a month, which is what you might pay for assisted living right now. So uh, interesting to watch uh, this experiment kind of move forward. And I'm sure we're going to see more of them since so many seniors are aging. Yeah. I have a friend whose mom is turning 98 and she just moved into assisted living literally uh, about two weeks ago. And she's like, she says to her, her, daughter, Oh dear, you wouldn't believe, but they actually give you three meals a day here. <laughs> <laughs> but what she really likes are the card games. So, you know.
1: <laughs> yeah. You just need to provide a diversity of options for people. Cause I think that, you know, as longevity has increased and healthy longevity uh, for many of us, thankfully has increased. Um, we don't even know what it means to be a senior anymore. And they're sort of younger seniors and they're older seniors and, uh, and but even, even, you know, in terms of age, you know, we don't even know what that means for, for older, um, you know. So I, I have a, an aunt who is living with her daughter in a continuing care community um, and she just turned 101 and she's vital. You know, she's, you know, uh, I just was talking with somebody uh, at a gathering yesterday and uh, um, she was telling me that, uh, uh, or I guess he was telling me his uncle is, is 90, living by himself <laughs> in, uh, I think he, he was in, in the Bronx or in, in Queens. And he just, you know, he, he that's his style. That's how he wants to, to live, you know, and. Um, He needs help, but he doesn't want help. So you you still have to have traditional housing for people who want to live that that lifestyle.
2: We need a variety of housing, and we need incentives to provide more of it in places where the homeless situation has got out of control. Uh, According to the Department of Housing and Urban Development, there's roughly 550,000 homeless people in the country now. It's a huge number. Uh, They seem to be, they're everywhere, right? It's not that they're just congregated in places with beautiful weather like California, Oregon, um, you know, or down in the South, Miami, they're, they're really in a lot of different places. And so we need to have, you know, more care for our homeless. We need more uh, housing for our veterans. There's just a lot of people who need housing in this country and we're behind in all of that as well as we are for single family houses, for millennials and Gen Z. By the way, millennials feel really like they're the forgotten generation here. Hmm. In a lot of ways, that's true, right? A lot of them seemed to uh, came of age right when we had the Great Recession. And afterwards, they had trouble finding jobs that paid well coming out of it. They didn't have a lot of savings. They were the uh, the older millennials. had. Uh, they were the first with huge uh, student loan debt
0: mm-hmm. and-
2: other kinds of debt uh, they're they're busy paying that off uh, but that's been a problem so for them saving for a house has been difficult challenging uh getting their credit scores where they need to be has also been challenging so
1: yeah yeah um so i wanted to shift um to um now your your blended career so you it sh- didn't really shift you're always to real estate but um, you're, you're blending of both real estate and and personal finance and consumer finance. That makes, it makes a lot of sense, but talk a little bit about it.
2: You know, I, I joke that I've had this really crazy career where I've gone from freelance writer to technology CEO in three easy decades. (laughs) You know, it's, it's been a real evolution and I, it's been some of the, what I'm doing now is some of the most intellectually challenging stuff I've ever done, which is exciting. But you know, as you pointed out, I started in you know writing freelance articles for places like the Washington Post and Chicago Tribune. And then I started uh, writing a syndicated column where I was paid, as you pointed out, $15 a week for two places, two new you know newspapers. Um, that grew and grew and I got a little lucky and I ended up at the height of it with about 135 newspapers, hmm. writing columns four times a week, which was an incredible amount of work, but a lot of fun. I also started writing my books. Uh, that led to some consulting opportunities and speaking opportunities. In fact, that's how I started my second company, ThinkLink Media. I was giving a speech uh, out in Phoenix, as it happens, and uh, to a bunch of realtors. And the CEO of the company that sponsored it took me aside and said, "You know, we're having a having a problem." They're a mortgage company. And he said, you know, we've got 6 million customers, but people never think about us when they go to refinance. What can we do? And I said, well, if only you could find a way to deliver the answers to the questions they have when they have them. And I, of course, had just finished my book and I was talking about that. And so I got the opportunity to design a project for them Mm -hmm. and I called it the Home Buyer Advantage, Home Seller Advantage. And it actually turned into this wildly successful program that delivered thousands and thousands and thousands of leads a month with a very predictable close rate simply by having this company be there to answer questions for people when they had the questions and it was a it was really exciting i did a i worked with that company for 7 years we developed a whole lot of other streams you know that that factored in and that, uh, then I started doing content marketing. Today, it's called content marketing. Then I didn't even have a language for it. I was like, well, I help people market. Um, but we started doing content marketing for a lot of different kinds of companies, Yahoo and AOL and uh, Countrywide Mortgage and um, Equifax, uh, just a, a lot of financial service companies and, and then a lot of just you know other kinds of companies. Because it turns out that the language of real estate and personal finance is so complicated Mm
0: -hmm.
2: that these big companies didn't really have a way to translate that so I was brought in to help translate and to make it understandable to people and to give them some options that they could understand and you know one of the things and you understand this about being on the radio or on television is you have to make it easy for people to understand their choices and the personal finance industry is all about complicating things real estate too Jargon this, jargon that, because the less you understand, the more money they make. Right. So I came in to kind of bridge that gap and take these really complicated uh, pieces of information that they were trying to explain and and simplify it and make it understandable and actionable. And that's what I ended up doing very successfully. And so that was company number two. And then I got an opportunity to... um delve into the healthcare space. Something I had never really done, didn't really understand a lot about it, but I started a third company with a partner and we built something called the Medicare News Group. Hmm. And Humana funded it, it was a three-year engagement to build a one-stop shop for all things, Medicare Advantage and Medicare. Uh, and so we built a huge team of award-winning journalists. and. Uh, delved into healthcare and created a place where regulators and um, journalists, for sure, but influencers and other people could come and learn about some of the challenges that the healthcare industry was facing. I ended up selling that company uh, after the whole thing got built and we won some awards and then came back to what I was doing in real estate and money. And then all of a Mm -hmm. sudden, one day I thought, wow, people really aren't recovering from the the real estate recession, from the Great Recession that we had, they're just it's 2014, 2015, and people are still struggling. What if there was a way to measure financial stress? And so I started thinking about how would you measure it, and I talked to people about measuring stress and financial stress, and all of a sudden I came up with the idea for my stressometer, which became. Ah. The key assessment tool in our best money moves platform that became company number four so that's how i became the head of a technology company after three easy decades
1: wow mm. yeah there i'm um, listening to you and there there are lots of um lessons in there i think well one of them for for especially for younger people is uh you know you're gonna have lots of careers <laughs> you can plan but 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 mainly. The planning really comes up with a basic plan and then paying attention to, uh, to the accidents that happen to you that are actually, oh, wait a minute, I did not see that. But now you take advantage of it and you move in that space. So, yeah, and and just to, to look at your career as a continual evolution. Um, so I think that's important, just to, to pay attention and, and move when, when you get a chance to do so. Um, uh, the... Uh, and and just be, being aware of uh, these opportunities, um, to, you know, because I, I think uh, being able to just sort of see these trends. So now, you know, you're, and so now you've even moved from being, you know, a, a money expert into a financial wellness expert, which I think it it's not just semantic. I think there is a difference how people look at this these days, and they do connect. You know, wellness with the, their money and their, as as you put it, love money and real estate. So you have a newsletter, right? That with that I do. title.
2: Yeah. So I chose that because I just think there is, you know, money. You made this point originally, and I've talked about this in all of my books. People are very emotional about their houses and they're really emotional about their money. They're very protective of it. And, you know, in some cases, The people that they love have very different financial or money values than they. And so when I was coming up with a title for this newsletter, I thought, you know, love because it's really all about relationships at the end of the day, right? If it's, if you don't have a good relationship with your money, you don't have a good relationship with the people around you, you really don't have much. So love and then money, because obviously, and then real estate, because also obviously. So these are my great loves, you know, the how the interplay of money and relationship and, and real estate, how that works together to help you live the life you want. When people just do not have a great sense of it. They, I, I don't know, there's a lot of fear around money. There's a lot of nervousness around big purchases, and it's just so much easier to not learn the details. And I'm a detail girl
1: yeah, I think there's, as you mentioned, there's fear about it. A lot of people don't want to talk about it. they're they're worried about it. you know there's there's all sorts of you know psychological <laughs> issues around money. So you're right. Um, and one of the things I found uh, interesting too though about the looking at things from a different perspective is with your best money moves. Um, so this is a it's a mobile first employee benefit, right? Um, and, and uh, so talk a little bit more about that. I you, you mentioned you know, dialing down stress. But i think what i found interesting is like wait a minute this is a different way to to look at the issue is from the instead of going out to the general public and you know pounding on doors or media going in inside companies where companies are actually dealing with their employees and this is a way to do it
2: yeah you know it's funny um again this was one of those insights i had back in 2014 and 2015 which is that people just didn't have any of the money All the money resided with companies and they were recovering from the great recession and people weren't so why not develop something where companies paid for the benefit and really there's such a strong roi there's such a reason to do this right a return on investment companies are always looking and they're saying to you well what's the benefit and you know it turns out that when you educate people about their money number one they value you as a business more two they also understand how to make better choices. They're much less likely to jump across the street and take a different job for an extra 10 cents an hour because they understand the relative additional value isn't necessarily as great as what they already know, right? The devil you know is always better than the devil you don't know. Right. So they, you know, but also when you have... Um, Better money security, and you understand more about your money, and you're a better steward of your money. It turns out you have uh, less, fewer accidents at work. Right? People who are stressed financially have eight times the number of workplace accidents than people who aren't. They have higher healthcare costs. They have lower job satisfaction. They're less productive. Um, there's a presenteeism problem, which sounds like one of those New Age words that's an actual thing now. Uh, And so there's lots of different things, even as far as having, uh, you know, higher health care, uh, lower health care costs with better outcomes. So you get healthier because it turns out when you're financially stressed, you have a higher rate of alcoholism, drug addiction. uh, You tend to be uh, have a weight loss issue. You may have more chronic illnesses. There's just a lot of things go into it and so we started looking at the data and at people who have done deep studies on connecting financial stress and your you know your money and your situation and how your health benefits and how the turnover benefits and really there's just almost an unlimited number of benefits to companies that do this. The problem that we also face though, is not only was it an ROI problem, we had to explain to companies that just providing a 401k program and health insurance was not financial wellness.
0: Mm.
2: I got to tell you five, seven years ago, nobody had any idea. When I talked about financial mm-hmm. wellness, they thought I was a little bit crazy, mm-hmm. um, but really I wasn't what I was trying to explain. And again, didn't have the verbiage then that I have today as this word and the phrasing has gotten more used and more recognized. But health wellness, financial wellness, mental wellness, all work together to provide total health well-being to employees and make them better employees, make them better people. And so companies that choose to invest this way, and it's, let me tell you something, it's a minute part. It's so much less than investing in health insurance, which companies do anyway. But there's such a small relative investment for such a huge benefit. And employers are now recognizing that this is the number one benefit employees want. And we had to educate them on what that meant. It's not just a point solution. You can't just say to somebody, here, here's a debt repayment plan. That's not wellness, right? It's everything together in a personalized way because the new trend in benefits is all about personalization. No matter what age or what stage you're at, you want the benefit to matter to you as if you're the only one and not one of ten thousand. So it's been a real interesting journey.
1: Yeah, I think it's it really is. Um, there's that whole aspect that again, the sort of an emotional psychological sense of wellness. I think it really is. It's it's real. First of all, um, there's also I think you know. Um, maybe, uh, you didn't think of it this, this way, but, uh, there's a pragmatic aspect to it too, is like, you have people who are worried about these things and don't have the skills and need them. And how do you reach them? Well, they're at work most of the time. <laughs> and uh, I found that, that this was a, an interesting, uh, parallel to a lot of the work that I do in, in caregiving, um, where people need resources and skills and they need to find out how to take care of their elderly parents. And, and again, they're, they're, as you point out they're they're stressed over finances and stressed over caregiving um, and so that affects their productivity um but where where do you where do you provide them the tools you know to deal with these issues? Well they're at work. so you you know you could do a webinar, but when they come home they're not going to go to a webinar they don't have time. so you you go to where they are.
2: That's right. And typically, employees spend at least five working hours a week worrying about thinking about or managing their personal finances. That's 250,000 hours a year. Uh, Excuse me, 250 hours a year. Uh, But the cost to employers is just millions and millions of dollars, billions, if you believe what Mercer says about its its study. So we have gone to employers. We have been talking to them. We have signed them up. And, you know, we're getting great feedback from employees who just love having all of these resources right there on their phones when they need it.
1: That's great. That's great. Um, So uh, one thing I, you do a lot of things. So In terms of your own life, how do you manage all this stuff? How do you, uh, how do you do it?
2: (laughs) You know what? I think I'm, you know, if you want to get something done, ask a really busy person. I think Mm -hmm. I'm that person. So, you know, we, I have a great team. I certainly am not doing this all on my own. I have a great team of people I've worked with for many, many years. Uh, they require very little supervision. In fact, they're supervising me more than I'm supervising Mm -hmm. them. They go off and do things, um, we also work with a tremendous group of contractors that we trust, that we've worked with for a long time. And I think that, you know, it's really just about being efficient, knowing what you need to get done and getting it done. And and that's really all we try to do, you know, meet our deadlines and uh, move forward.
1: Well, wow, that's terrific. Okay, so listen, we're, we're going to take another quick break, uh, but don't go away, folks. We'll, we still have a lot more to talk about with the least Glink of Think Glink. Um, so, uh, we'll be right back, uh, and, uh, we'll finish up with another terrific conversation. Don't go anywhere. Voice America is on LinkedIn. Connect with us today.
0: Tune in to Melody Edmondson's The Space of the Waste radio program. Now
1: back to 45 Forward. Welcome back, folks. We have one more segment with Elise Link, the president of Think Link, an award winning journalist, best selling author, podcaster, columnist, radio, and TV personality. So um, I, I want to just ask you in our last segment, um, uh, Elise, it's just so- sort of your thoughts going forward. You know, now both of us are 45 forward. Um, it, it does seem like, a, okay, so there seems to be still a lot of, you know, lingering fallout from the pandemic. And as you pointed out earlier, um, hangovers tend to last a long time. So some of this is compounding even from the two thousand two, two thousand nine, 2008-2009 financial crisis. Um, so it, it does seem that we are slowly pivoting to something else. Um, in our culture, what what are your thoughts as, as you sort of uh, look at a confluence of money and careers and housing and so forth?
2: I think there's a generational shift in the making right now. I think that young people have kind of come to the conclusion that they better save the planet or there's no point.
0: Mm-hmm. I think
2: they're less uh, they're interested in making money. Don't get me wrong, but they're also interested in balance. And they're not about to work, uh, overwork, just to make a little extra money. Not Most of them aren't. Uh, They want balance in their lives. They want to enjoy what they enjoy. They're much less interested in getting married and having kids than they were. They're also much less interested in religion, organized religion of any sort. So it's funny, you know, when we went into the workplace, Ron, you and I, our employer told us how it was these generations are coming into the workforce and they're telling the employer how it is and they're making that workforce and I think we're only beginning to see some of those changes take effect I think the introduction of chat GPT and artificial intelligence and democratizing that and making that much more widely available is going to change so many things and this generation that grew up with you know cell phone chips and planted in their brains basically They're the ones driving that change. They're going to ride it and it's going to be profound. So I I can't even imagine what's coming next.
1: Yeah. And and there are a lot of things at play. I mean, I remember uh, a couple weeks ago talking with someone about uh, retirement planning issues and you sort of think, well, our generation was, uh, you know, okay, the baby boomers were, okay, we started planning and we'd got the 401ks and all this stuff. And uh, I found out that actually millennials are, are better savers than we were. You know, they're saving more of their 401ks than we did.
2: <laughs> they are, but, it you know, with inflation, they're going to need to save even more than that. So the, the real question is, will millennials really be able to retire before the age of 75? And the answer may not be, you know, no, they can't. But, you know, what's interesting about that, Ron, is that, you know, people are living a long time. And Social Security, when it started 80 years ago or so, You know, people lived about nine months beyond their 65th birthday. That's why they chose 65, right? The average person only lived to be 65. Today, if you're married, you're just as likely to live to 85 to 90 as you are to live to 65. And so if that's an average, and so many people today, young people, our kids' age, they're going to live to easily into their 90s or 100. It doesn't really make sense if you're able to stop working and then you have 40 years of what <laughs> it's right. just not going to really work and so i you know we're seeing a revolution happen around the world where the reality of numbers and fewer people in the workforce is is actually changing things the other thing that's changing things that i think we're only beginning to see it now is you know there was all this talk about being an influencer well today people are making a lot of money as influencers and that wasn't a, an available option for me growing up. Mm-hmm. Now Maybe it is, and maybe that'll be my next act after okay. I finish with all this stuff, I'll be a financial influencer. Uh, or maybe I'll help my friend who's starting a, uh, a company that manufactures bio bricks that are cheaper, faster, and have a better R value than concrete block, right? I don't know. But there are so many different kinds of things to work on today that, uh, you know, for many people who are educated and and adept with computers, whether or not you've had formal education or you just are self-taught, there's a lot of ways to continue to make a living well into your 50s, 60s, 70s and beyond.
1: Yeah, I think you're exactly right. And I think that that is happening. So, you know, it's sort of moving targets. It's certainly true of millennials, uh, but it's, you know, we're part of that overall shift because we do find a lot, you know, there's a whole, you know, uh, the the sector of research about people over 50 as entrepreneurs, starting new things. I think people are going to be living their so-called retirement the way you lived your whole life, (laughs) which is in chapters. No, I think so. You know, I mean, because you don't, you didn't, you didn't think, well, I'm going to do this until I'm 50. You, You just kept shifting and changing. And I think that that, you know, a chapter by chapter, approach to life makes a lot of sense because you you know it's it's closer I mean it it's closer it's a it's a more pragmatic way to think about long-term strategic planning because <laughs> beyond 3 years you don't know what's going to happen next
2: um well I'm not even sure you know what's going to happen next year that's what happened with the pandemic we were all a little surprised by that right. um, I do think though there'll have to be some fundamental changes if you know people are going to freelance you know, young or old, there's the healthcare question. Mm. My husband and I have paid our own healthcare bills our entire career, you know, we're paying it now for our employees through the company. Um, You've got to have a way to get health insurance that covers you and will protect you. You also need to have, you know, more of a way to save down the line for when you can't work or if you can't work because the risks today are number one, longevity, right? You're going to outlive your money. But there's also risks that you're going to need extra help as well, uh, maybe earlier. And so people really have to assess and take care of themselves physically, understand what, you know, where those costs are and how they can protect themselves and the ones they love. And really, when you're freelancing or having this kind of career where you go and do a lot of different things, you've got to be very cautious about it. And that's really where my knowledge of personal finance came from. You know, I had to learn it. Because there were so many questions I had trying to build a business and, you know, and doing something for myself.
1: Yeah, I think that that's a a terrific perspective. And I think you've gone right to the market because you were there. And I think that too many people think about from an institutional basis or, you know, uh, a a government basis. I think we we look at how the organizations serve people in terms of uh, this is what we provide. It's like, I don't care what you provide. What do people need? <laughs> that's right. the real issue. But I think that um um that's something that I in dealing with lots of government agencies, you know, and dealing with aging issues, I found that, you know, they 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 have programs, um, but they don't have what you have, which is like they don't know how to connect to people, you know. So they have these all these programs and there's never any money for marketing. They can get, you know, government um, you know, funding for just the programs themselves, and but people don't know how to use them. They don't know how to find them. Um, and they don't know. and as you already pointed out, they don't know how to put it in simple language, you know?
2: Yeah. It's complicated. Money can be complicated. It's, you know, but I try to just demystify and cut the red tape and provide ways for people to understand more about their lives, make the most of the money they have.
1: right. So before we close, I want to make sure that we get some information about um, your website, your resources. How do people reach you? What can they find out about about you and your work?
2: Uh, Well, you can go to thinkglink.com, T-H-I-N-K-G-L-I-N-K.com, or you can sign up for my newsletter at glink.substack.com. Or if you're a company and looking to bring financial wellness, go to bestmoneymoves.com.
1: Yeah, lots of ways to do it and they're all worth checking out. I've done it. <laughs> yeah. So I think that uh, there's a there's a lot going on there. You can read your blog. There's there're lots of resources there. Um and and of course, you you know, people can see you on uh, LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter. You're active there as well. So um uh anything coming up in terms of your any events or you know uh, that people from across the country can and webinars or stuff like that?
2: Uh, just, to, you know, the usual different kinds of podcasts, uh, you know, we'll be starting to build some new videos for my YouTube channel. I've got, I don't know, a bunch of subscribers over there. You can watch, you can actually see what I looked like 20 years ago when I was traipsing through houses, mm. uh, with contractors talking about what you needed to watch out for when you buy a house. So there you go. It's a it's a look back in time in addition to a look forward. But Lots of, you know, lots of new projects all the time. And, uh, you know, just watch glink.substack.com or thinklink.com for details.
1: Right. Okay. Great. Okay, folks. Well, there's always much more to talk about with Elise, but we'll have to leave it there for today. Uh, once again, you can find out more about her by going to her uh, her website, uh, thinklink.com. You can also just uh, listen to a podcast. Uh, on uh, voiceamerica.com if you missed if your friends missed it today or you can go to my website RoelResources.com and click on 45 forward Um, so uh, be sure to join me next monday 12 noon pacific 3 p.m eastern time when i'll be talking with mark miller he's a nationally recognized expert on trends in retirement and aging we'll talk about his new book retirement reboot common sense financial strategies for getting back on track so until then folks Keep moving forward, 45 Forward.
0: Thank you for tuning in to 45 Forward. Please join your host, Ron Rowell for another great show next Monday at 12 noon Pacific time and 3 p.m. Eastern time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We wish you a great week.